Hey, welcome to the Course Reports, your real deal inside look into professional golf venues around the world. We have got one heck of an episode for you today with Keith Wood, golf course superintendent at Quail Hollow Club, host of the Wells Fargo Championship and legendary golf course superintendent of the 1991 Ryder Cup War by the Shore, Mr. George Fry. I'm Curtis Tyrell, certified golf course superintendent, master greenkeeper. I'm here to bring you the smooth and true facts. It's time to get on the green. It's time for the course reports. Hey, well, thanks for tuning in to the course reports this week. We have one incredible episode for you with a couple of industry leading guests when it comes to the profession of golf course maintenance, conditioning, tournament preparation, and even legendary guests at that. So I want to go right to it and welcome our guests from the Quail Hollow Club, one of the busiest guys on the earth right now, Keith Wood. Keith, welcome to the Course Reports. How are you today? Hey, I'm great, Kurt. Thanks for having me. I look forward to uh, talking to you guys today. Oh, man, we're excited. You know, your event is always, uh, you know, just at the gr great time of year. Everybody's really excited about golf. The golf course is always unbelievable. You got great champions. We're going to dive into that here in just a second. I want to introduce our second guest from Trans Golf, a legendary golf course superintendent, has worked with some of the, the finest clubs in the country, and he himself was the 1991 War by the Shore Ryder Cup superintendent. George Fry. George, welcome to the Course Reports. Likewise, Curtis. Look forward to it. Hey, well, you know, this has been an exciting adventure that I've gotten myself into, reaching out to guys that are in the middle of the busiest times of their year, trying to get a conversation going. But what has really surprised me about the process is how willing everybody is to share some information and kind of get it out to the golfer and the golf fan. We've been getting a lot of great feedback. You know, in your careers, you know, George, I mean, you've been at this a long time. Do you find that the people you come across have a particular interest in the, the things that you've done? Absolutely. Uh, you know, Curtis, as I look back at honestly close to 40 years of being in this business, just watching it evolve and also sharing past experiences. Uh, you know, Keith and I had a, we first met uh, uh, when he did the renovation and he did several renovations at uh, Sedgefield. And then of course, is now at Quail Hollow, but boy, what a great experience uh, then to uh, have the opportunity to work with Keith and get that golf course ready in such a short time frame. So not only working with guys like Keith, but other guys out there in the industry, such as Hal Hicks and uh, uh, Jeff Stone, who is getting ready to host the PGA Championship coming up uh, in 2021 at, at, at Kiowa. So uh, yeah, it's 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 been a it's it's been a lot of fun uh, over the last several years to watch uh, and help guys in the industry. You know, no doubt about it. I mean, the, the industry is incredibly rich with talent. And Keith, you know, you you're uh, one of the industry leaders. You've you've got a number of tournaments under your belt, renovations, a PGA Championship. I bet you get asked a bunch about where you work and if they can get uh, tea time, huh? Yeah, everybody's interested in playing Quail Hollow. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, well, tell us a little bit about Quail Hollow. How long you been there and your career path to, to getting there? I've been at Quail Hollow now since uh, May of 2015. Oh, shoot. The career path to get here. I guess I, um, I just interviewed really well one day and, and got lucky enough to land this job. It's a job of a lifetime and I'm very fortunate to be here. Um, 
You know, uh, Quail Hollow is such a special place because uh, the club is, is driven by the game of golf and the values that golf teaches people and um, and just a lot of people who, who love the game. Additionally, what's beautiful and great about Quail Hollow is that there's always a desire to be the best. Um, Ron Green Jr. Uh, had a little quote said, uh, Quail Hollow takes good to better and better to best. And that's kind of the way we, um, we live every day here at Quail Hollow. Is, uh, we want to do the best that we can. We want to give the membership the best golf course that we can give them every day. And then, you know, we want to show off to the world at least once a year. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the reputation is impeccable and, and the golf course always shows extremely well, performs uh, extremely well against the world's best players. Uh, so there's no doubt about uh, Quail Hollow's place in, in the history of the game. But back to you for a minute. So uh, where, where were you working before you interviewed so great that day? And, you know, where'd you go to school and, and where are you from originally? That kind of thing. I'm a Carolinas boy. I've, I've always uh, grown grass in the Carolinas. I kind of fell into this profession by luck. Um, I, I was a, a junior at the University of South Carolina pursuing a degree in biology and uh, didn't have a summer job. And my roommate was a bag boy at a, at a, country, a local country club. And, and you know, I loved playing golf. And so uh, the superintendent was hiring. And, and next thing you know, I'm walking mowing greens and playing golf in the afternoon and, and said, wow, you know, um, I, I looked at uh, the superintendent, who's Kevin Redfern. He's the superintendent of the Governor's Club in Chapel Hill. And, you know, he had a beautiful wife and three beautiful kids and, and looked like he was happy and healthy. And I said, you know, this could be a profession for me. And, um, and lo and behold, uh, it, it turned into a profession. I finished out the University of South Carolina and got that Bachelor of Science degree and then went up to Rutgers and, and took place in the, uh, the two-year uh, program there uh, through the uh, professional golf turf management school. And, uh, and then I was off and running. My first superintendent job was at Florence country club in Florence, South Carolina. And, uh, we hosted the first stage of the PGA Q school. And, and I, I met some of the PGA tour officials when they came down to, uh, run that tournament. And one thing led to another there. And then, um, from Florence country club, I went up to Sedgefield country club where we hosted the Wyndham championship. And, uh, I had bent grass greens at Florence, which is a very difficult place to grow bent grass, did fairly well with it. And I think that's what opened the door for me to get the job at Sedgefield because we had bent grass greens at the time at Sedgefield. And, and that was also an August tournament. So they really wanted somebody there who knew how to handle summer bent grass and, um, and produce a golf course that was worthy of the touring pros. Now, with that being said, you know, bent grass in the South is extremely difficult. Sedgefield was a Donald Roth design, so firmness uh, was an uh, integral part to the way the golf course played. And, you know, Kurt, it's, it's, it's really hard to keep bent grass firm in the southeast, especially in August. You just, you, you're so subject to Mother Nature throwing the curveballs, and it, it's really hit, hard to hit that curveball out of the park every single year. So, naturally, when the Ultra Dwarf Bermuda grasses came along, it was, um, it was good for us to go ahead and convert those greens. And, that's whenever I got lucky enough to meet George Fry, who, who in my opinion, is the, the expert in uh, Ultra Dwarf Bermuda grass management. And um, George was able to teach me a lot of things that, uh, that uh, um, set me up for the next stage, which was Quail Hollow, which, you know, they had Bermuda grass greens. And uh, I think 
the people at Quail saw that I was able to do a good job at Sedgefield with the Bermuda Greens. And, uh, and like I said, I interviewed well and ended up uh, landing this job. Man, that's, that's fascinating stuff. I, I love hearing the stories about how, you know, all of us guys came and, and, and some of the ladies came to be in this profession. You know, it's, it's always, there's always a point in the story where, you know, you, you fall in love with being on the golf course, like you said, and, and realizing that, wow, you can make a career out of this, you know, and next thing you know, you're, you're, you're focused and you're passionate. And that is a great story. George, you know, how did you get into the business? Well, a little bit different than Keith. I, I had the opportunity of growing up in the Pinehurst area and always loved golf and loved growing things. Uh, Curtis always felt like I had a little bit of a green thumb. And of course that with, uh, uh, at times being a pretty good golfer, I love the game led me to, uh, getting my degree in agronomy, graduating from North Carolina state. You know, when I first started, I, I, I maybe it was by dumb luck. But I, I realized early on that one of I felt like uh, one of the prerequisites, and I was just a young kid at the time, to being successful was work for the best guys and work at the best places. And in doing that, I, I'd worked at Pinehurst and worked at the Raleigh Country Club and worked at uh, Kings Mill. And uh, these were all summer jobs and worked at the Golden Horseshoe. And and I kind of like construction. So when I, when I graduated from state, my goal was to work under as many architects as I could. And I, uh, I had a unique opportunity to, to start out at, at Seabrook Island as an assistant. And I, I knew the uh, superintendent, Chris Tillman, might leave. And sure enough, after about nine months, he left. And a year and a half later, I had the opportunity to work with Robert Trent Jones and worked with him on building a golf course. And uh, a couple of years later, I went out to the Oak Hills Country Club and worked with Jay Morse and renovated Old Tillinghouse Golf Course. And Hosted the Texas Open, and I think my wife was homesick for Charleston, South Carolina, and uh, made made it back to uh, made it back to Kiowa. I was actually going to go to Lake Nona, uh, uh, and it just did not materialize in a timely manner, and I ended up at Kiowa. Uh, so I had the opportunity then to work with Tom Fazio and uh, build Osprey Point with him and Andy Banfield, and and you know I was going to leave Kiowa. And shortly after Osprey Point was opened, I said, you know, it's time for me to go start a construction company. Well, lo and behold, Landmark showed up, Landmark Land Company, and they had the 1991 Ryder Cup scheduled for PGA West. So when they bought Kiowa, they said, hey, we're going to move the 1991 Ryder Cup from PGA West to a golf course that wasn't built which was the ocean course. And of course, then they uh, hired Pete to, in 1989 to come in, start construction. And two years later, we uh, hosted the war by the shore. And of course, we worked our way through Hurricane Hugo, which was a challenge. But, um, uh, you know, and then after that, uh, you know, I did a lot of speaking and, you know, typical stuff, trying to give back to the industry and you know, I was very, I was very fortunate, uh, Curtis. I probably couldn't recre- repeat my career again in ten years, but in a ten-year period, I did a, a, a lot. So, in two thousand, I, I, I wanted to try my hand at some other things, and that's what led me to Transgolf and working with different products and working with superintendents, doing a variety of consulting, whether it was 
independent or whether it was selling products or just uh, and then doing some work with Champion Turf also. So it's uh, it's been a fun it's been a fun ride. Part of it I didn't envision how it was going to all work out, but I probably wouldn't change anything. I tell you what, I did not know the uh, that that full story about the Ryder Cup intended for PGA West and being moved to the Ocean Course, which wasn't built yet. So you you had to build a course and and get it ready for that kind of event right out of the gate. That had to be quite the time period for you. Yeah, it was. Uh, it, it kind of gave me chill bumps as I, you know, as I, I look back. As I look back, I realized the work that I did at Oak Hills when I ran out there and I was pretty young doing it, I think I was 28, we remodeled the whole golf course and hosted the Texas Open all in the same year. And then actually about the same time as what the Ryder Cup was in September. So when we started the process, I said, hey, I've done this before. You know, it's just, it was just on a smaller scale. So that it it wasn't, as I, you know, we went through a lot of variables, but, um, yeah, it, it was it was two years of uh, very hard work and dealing with some very tough elements. And I think probably looking back, I think the most it was the highest high and the highest low I think I've ever been in because we we finished the tournament. It came down to the last hole, the last putt, and the week after the tournament was over with, Landmark filed Chapter Eleven. And I think it was probably like I said, the highest high and one of the highest lows that uh, uh, not only myself but the people that were involved with it could ever have gone through. So, Oh man. Well, you know what? We could do uh, a couple episodes on the 1991 war by the shore rider cup and all that led into the golf course construction and all that. And I'm going to definitely have to hit you up to get back on here to talk about that for, for sure. Cause we could go on for, for a long time, but I wanted to jump back to uh, when you and Keith met. So you guys met at Sedgefield, right? Keith, that's what you said. And you were, taking Sedgefield from Creeping Bend Grass to Ultra Dwarf Bermuda Grass. And at the time you were doing that, weren't you kind of on the forefront of guys in that area really making that leap, you know, to the Ultra Dwarfs? Yeah, um, you know, there had been some courses around us that had done it, uh, but we, we were kind of creeping up in the northern end of North Carolina there. Um, but the, it had definitely already taken shape and materialized around uh, you know, the Midlands of South Carolina. But yeah, there, there was not another course um, in the Greensboro area other than Stormout Forest who had Ultra Dwarf Bermuda Grass. So we, we knew it would work. What was the some of the bigger differences that you had to learn moving from, you know, being obviously, you know, a top tier bentgrass grower in that kind of climate over to Bermuda Grass? Was there anything in particular that you can, you know, right off the top of your head say, hey, this was critical? Well, I, yeah, yeah. Uh, most definitely. So uh, bent, to me, bent grass is easier to get it rolling good, uh, to, to have the putting surfaces roll like they should roll. Bent grass is much easier. So there's more to an art for Bermuda grass greens as, as far as putting quality. Just the opposite, uh, the bent grass is harder to keep alive in the summertime where the Bermuda grass is, you, know, you really don't have to worry about it whatsoever uh, as far as it as it growing. So, it, you know, the cultural practices with the Bermuda grass, getting into the routines, uh, understanding the top dressing sands, understanding the fertility requirements of the Bermuda grass is quite different. But, you know, it's um, it's like George said, he, he, he thought he had a green thumb early on. You know, grass is grass. And I think good golf course superintendents 
can grow either grass uh, either way if they understand putting quality, they understand leaf texture, and you know they have basic agronomic experience. Uh, uh, you can make it work. Yeah, yeah, you know, good good points there. That's it's interesting. Now, you know, in terms of you know, you talked about the the challenges with creeping bent grass in your neck of the woods in August and in the, in the heart of the summer. Are there any particular winter challenges with the ultra dwarf Bermuda grasses? And do you ever get a little on the nervous side during the winter as you're moving into your tournament season? Oh, absolutely. You know, for example, uh, last year, our, our tournament in 2018, uh, you know, that, that was a very stressful uh, Wells Fargo championship because we had a brutal winter here in the Carolinas. Uh, you know, the polar vortex came down and right around New Year's and, um, woke up New Year's morning 2018 and I checked the weather station and it said 15 degrees and you know, then my heart just kind of skipped a beat and you know I was, I was a little tired because uh, my brother came up that evening and uh, you know we did what brothers do on New Year's so I, you know I had to take another look at my weather station there because I wasn't expecting it you know we were, we were forecasted to have lows in the upper 20s um, and when it said 15, uh, you know, I kind of got scared. It dinged us up a little bit. So we had some challenges to go through, and we had a cold spring. So, you know, you, you just never know what you're going to get in the Carolinas. Uh, we do know we're going to get four seasons, and how extreme they're going to be, it could go either way. You know, it's it's interesting that, George, that you bring up kind of the concept of a green thumb, because I was once asked how much of the profession is – having a green thumb and having a command of just the science, you know? And so there's certainly a balance there. Wouldn't you agree that you, you've got to understand the scientific and foundational principles of, of turf grass management, biology, plant pathology and such. But then there's that part where you just got to be able to understand and forecast, anticipate. And, and that's where the art comes in. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. Curtis later in my life, I started, Understanding also, and uh, Keith and I have joked about it over the years. I shouldn't say joked about it, but uh, you know, you also got to know what good is, and we we always refer to that in our conversation. So uh, I think there's a very careful balance: is understanding playability and knowing what good is, and balancing that with good agronomics. So uh, I think that's the unique part of our business is. Golfers really don't look at how healthy things are. They look at playing conditions, but we as superintendents have to look at also uh, the playability and very carefully balance uh, that with uh, sound agronomic practices. And honestly, uh, we can't let one compromise the other. Yeah. Do you think that, that we in the industry have a different definition of good than, say, your average country club member? I don't Keith, What are your thoughts? Well, you know, it's um, it's tough because a lot of times playability trumps agronomics on a golf course, and and, it, and it's up to us, like George said, to to make it balanced. But um, I always err on I, I want it to play better than it looks, and sometimes if if you have to sacrifice one, I I, I typically sacrifice the agronomics over the uh, for the playability. Sure. Sure. And I guess that also depends on where you're at in your season, what your window of weather is ahead of you. Right. I mean, like you said, it's a balancing act. It's, it's knowing when to apply each principle and, and ultimately satisfying your customer for what they're looking for. But, uh, it's definitely not easy. Fair enough to say guys. Yeah, that's, that's very fair to say. And, and, you know, back, back to your point, 
I don't think that the, the golfers out there really understand the balancing act that's going on. They see the playability. They, they see how the course plays, and, and that's pretty much it. And, you know, that, that's where the art of greenskeeping comes in, and the green thumb and the balancing act that we, that we have to do, because that needs to be seamless. We, we need to do all the work behind the scenes and make sure that the surfaces are as good as they can be day in and day out. I was going to say, you know, just to echo a little bit of what Keith just said, you know, typically golfers really don't care how you got it to good or why it's bad. They just see what they're seeing when they are out there playing golf. And uh, that's what makes our uh, industry and the art of maintaining great playing conditions so difficult. Yeah, no question about it. And it's, it's interesting, too, because depending on whether you're at a public facility or a resort, but in particular at a private country club, at least, you know, that's where I spent most of my career, is, you know, you may have a 20 handicap that has a completely different perception of playability than, say, your five handicap. And so you get into one fixed customer group that repeats every day and you got different demands in terms of playability. So it, it becomes challenging and you're trying to please everybody, which we all know you can't do, you know, but I think that's what makes it fun too, right? Is to, is to head out there each and every day and figure out, you know, how good you are based on your own evaluation, the agronomics, where you're headed and what your customer's uh, profile is for the day. Um, I don't know what you guys think, but you know, that, that's definitely, to me, a, a big challenge of being at a private club. I think Keith and I, whether you call it being fortunate or this is the direction we've chosen, but certainly for myself, I was very fortunate to be in a part of the industry that my goal was to produce the absolute best conditions that I could produce. And the level of good that I believe that Keith and I have always been accustomed to is honestly, on a scale of one to ten, 10 was always our goal. Anything less than that, not that we ever reached that 10, but that was our goal. I'm not sure that that uh, level of good is should be everywhere, okay? I, I think you, you need to produce the level of good that is uh, based on what your customer is looking for. I think that's kind of, you alluded, maybe alluded to that, Curtis. Yeah, yeah. No, definitely. So, you guys worked together at Sedgefield, and and so George, you were you were working with Keith in the conversion over to uh, Champion Ultra Dwarf Bermuda Grass. Is that what you did there, Keith? And then when you went on to Quail Hollow, um, what did you first encounter there? You were you were there to convert them from bent to Bermuda as well, correct? Uh, negative. Um, they they had many verde Bermuda grass when I got here, and they had already converted. Um, However, there, there were some issues with the uh, with surfaces, and uh, they, they just weren't up to standards. And, uh, and so um, we, took, uh, we got rid of the Mini Verde and, and put in Champion G12. And uh, how has that been performing uh, since you did it? Oh, fantastic. I love the grass. Uh, you know, the, the G12 is it's so unique in that it, it grows so low to the ground. It's really hard to get it... Uh, to get it ready for the winter season, in my opinion, here in the Carolinas, because it, it, it stays so low to the ground. So while you're trying to raise your heights, protect the plant during the cold, it, it just wants to stay really, really low. But it's good for uh, putting quality. I'll tell you, this, this grass, um, the putting quality is phenomenal. I tell you what, the champion Bermuda grass that I've had the, the pleasure of playing on is really, really fantastic surface. What else are you growing out there in the fairways and the rough? 
Well, we have a we have a mixture of uh, 328, 419 fairways, uh, and uh, 419 roughs. For the Wells Fargo Championship, we're an overseeded golf course, so uh, the entire place is overseeded, 400 pounds of the acre with perennial ryegrass, and um, and we do our approaches in, in greens. We, we throw a little uh, pull a triv on there, add a little color contrast, and, uh, and make it look good. So it. For the Wells Fargo Championship, when you're watching it on TV, it's really going to look like a cool season golf course because, you know, that's primarily what you're seeing with a with a nice dense uh, Bermuda under canopy there supporting the uh, the cool season grasses. And we do our approaches in, in greens. We, we throw a little uh, pull a triv on there. We do our approaches in, in greens. We, we throw a little uh, pull a triv on there uh, to add a little color contrast and, uh, and make it look good. So it. For the Wells Fargo Championship, when you're watching it on TV, it's really going to look like a cool season golf course because, you know, that's primarily what you're seeing with a with a nice dense uh, Bermuda under canopy there supporting the uh, the cool season grasses. That that's really interesting. Now, in 2017, you had both the Wells Fargo and the PGA Championship, right? No, we did not. We um, in 2017, we only had the PGA Championship, fortunately. Okay, and but in August of, of 2017, you had the PGA Championship, and that was strictly on your Bermuda surfaces, obviously. Correct. That was 100% Bermuda. And so, you know, you you you're you're producing on the same golf course, essentially, kind of a cool season playability and a, a full all out Bermuda playability. You've done both at the highest level. I mean, tell us about the differences there, and and was there anything more challenging or more particularly more difficult than uh, the other? Well, I, um, I really like the overseeded golf course better than the non-overseeded golf course, to be honest with you. Uh, yeah, the, the visual of the ryegrass is just stunning. Um, you're able to you know, push the ryegrass and pull the ryegrass to give you different contrasting colors. And, you know, with it being played in May, our Bermuda grass under canopy, like I said, is supporting the ryegrass. So you, you have a really good surface that is um, that aesthetically looks pleasing due to the, the color of the ryegrass. Um, now with with the PGA and being in August, um, golly, Bermuda grass in August in the Carolinas is is kind of kooky. You know, it, it, the plant's trying to uh, to get ready for the fall, so it's it's trying to harden off. It gets a little bit stemmy, so you have to really pay attention to your verticutting and your top dressing and your cultural practices early in the season to, to prepare the surface, so that way you you don't go through mower scalp and and things of that nature. So um, uh, you know, I, I'd much rather put on a tournament with an overseeded golf course in the Carolinas than have to go through um, uh, any more August tournaments. <laughs> That's um, I hear you there, man. What What are your members like? Do they prefer? You know, is the volume of play greater in the overseeded time period? It is, but that's the culture of the club here. You know, we do we do a lot of play in the spring. And in the summertime, we, we typically get into some construction projects in the summertime, and we also have our transition where the rye is burning out and the Bermuda is filling in. So um, uh, we definitely do a lot more play in the spring and fall here at Quail than we do in the middle of the summer. Right. Now, George, uh, are you going to be heading up for uh, the event this week? I don't believe so. I don't uh, – I uh, uh, but I know it's going to look great on uh, – uh, I know it's going to play good and look great on TV. Keith always has it in fantastic shape. I'll be, th- I'll be thinking about all that hard work uh, that you're putting in there, Keith. 
Yeah, it's uh, man, we're, we're having fun. It's just not really hard work. We got a great staff, great group group of leaders, and you know, t- you, George, you talk about the highs and lows that you had for the um, uh, the war by the shore, but you know that that is the highs and lows is what tournament golf is, especially for um, for your team of greenskeepers because everybody's motivated and working towards a goal. And uh, when that champion's crowned um, and he ho- hosts, uh, he lifts that trophy. And it's all over with. Then you're just left with a mess to clean up, and then that's that's your low. But you got to get through it and and, and start putting it on. Because when you think about forty thousand people a day trampling the golf course outside the ropes, man, it uh, you know it gets demolished, and it's um, it's a tough pill to swallow when you're looking at it uh, the week after the tournament, knowing you've got a lot of work to do. But hey, that's what we're paid to do. The staff gets a plenty of overtime and. And uh, it's good job security for everyone. Keith, about your crew, how many guys do you uh, have on, uh, on your staff year-round and volunteers? Do you bring in any volunteers for the Wells Fargo Championship? Absolutely. We, we bring in a lot of volunteers. We're very proud of our volunteer program. Worked, worked very hard to, uh, to bring volunteers in, to give them a good experience, uh, and, and we welcome their help year in and year out. Uh, we can't do it without them. Uh, we typically have a staff of right around 30 uh, to maintain this property of 257 acres. And uh, we bring in right around 60 volunteers for the week to help us out with the two shifts a day where we mow the place top to bottom. Wow, yeah, that's, that's quite, a, quite an organized effort there. In terms of the event, uh, on your doorstep here, uh, anything in particular that you're paying attention to that uh, is not normal for you or that you might be um, concerned about in any way, or is everything kind of right in the lane that you were hoping for? Yeah. Knock on wood this year. We're, uh, man, we're, we are right in between the lines. We're right where we're supposed to be. The course is, uh, the course is peaking at the right time. We did a fertility app about a month and a half ago. So we we got through that flush of growth that we see in the ryegrass in the spring and everything's kind of mellowed out now. And we're just working on the details. And couldn't be happier with where the golf course is. We've had some, some warm weather. So uh, the Bermuda grass base is waking up. The greens are in really good shape. The, uh, the champion is squeezing the pole of triv nice and tight. We're able to cut it really low. So that we feel really good about the condition of our putting greens and the detail of the tee boxes and the approaches. And the fairways are fantastic. And, uh, we're very excited for these guys to go ahead and get here and tee it up. Oh man, that's that's great to hear. In in terms of your greens in particular, I bet you probably have to put a little bit of a governor on those things because uh, they could probably get a lot faster than the tour would want you to have them. Is that possible? Absolutely, it's possible. We um, you know we we take stent readings twice a day right now. We're measuring firmness and moisture, and you know all that's. All that's in preparation for the tournament week, so that way we, we know what's going to happen when we do or don't do things, and we know how to, to move the needle. And you know, we have a goal um, for how we want our greens to play, and and we know where that line is where you go from having a great green where you can have a competition to where it kind of crosses the line and you get into goofy golf. And uh, and that's one thing you don't want to do in tournament play is take whole locations. Uh, away from the uh, tour officials you know we want them to be able to go out and put a hole wherever they want to put it on the green and that, and that has to do with green speeds uh, one of the things that i think is so amazing with the the architecture um, that uh, 
these golf course architects do, and in particular for us here at Koala, is Mr. Fazio, is they design these greens so that way the hard hole locations are tucked in the corners and they're not very accessible. So we have to really watch our, our green speed to make sure that they can use those hole locations and that the, the, the greens don't get so fast it gets goofy. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, that's interesting. Quail Hollow has gone through a few renditions since it was originally designed in 1961 by George Cobb. There's a Arnold Palmer work was done in 86 and then Fazio in 1997 and 2016, correct? Correct. And uh, George, you mentioned you worked with Tom Fazio um, a bit back in the day. He certainly um, has command over championship golf, no? Boy, he sure does. Um uh... One thing I learned from Tom, he, he let, he had so many design associates that worked with him, uh, Tom Morsoff, Andy Blanfield, Blake Bickford. Uh, and then of course you had Tom himself and, and Tom, uh, when he first got started, he actually used to have his own construction company. Um, I, 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 I might be mistaken on this, but I think it was TG construction, uh, Tom George and Tom liked to do all the shaping himself, but uh, I really learned a lot from working with Tom and watch how he utilized his his different in-house designers to bring variety to his designs. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, uh, speaking of designs, you know, there's there's a number of events being played uh, in conjunction with yours, Keith. The Volvo China Open is at Genzon Golf Club in Shenzhen, China this week. The Champions Tour is down at Houston at the Woodlands Country Club. Chris Hartman's the superintendent there for the Insperity Invitational. will be playing on some Ultra Dwarf Greens down there. Matthew Dachowski is the superintendent at Lake Merced up in the Bay Area, a 1923 Willie Locke design that was touched up and improved by Alistair McKenzie in 1929 and then Reese Jones in 1926. So there's uh, lots of great golf, including the web.com at the Nashville Golf and Athletic Club. And the Latin Tour guys are playing in the Dominican Republic this week. So for all the golf fans listening, there's lots of great golf, including the Wells Fargo Championship hosted by Keith Wood. And uh, George and Keith, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedules to be on the course reports. We really appreciate it. And before I let you go, I just want to ask you one kind of fun question. And uh, George, we'll start with you. In your tournament experience, you know, what's what's the funniest tournament story you got? Something that happened during one of your events that uh, would just, you know, give you a laugh. Wow. I, uh, hmm. Or can you not say? Well, you could say it because it's uh, – it's a podcast. <laughs> no, it, it, it's fine. I, I could probably go back to the uh, 1991 Ryder Cup, War by the Shore. And honestly, uh, I felt like the place for that time, uh, as far as condition, was ahead of itself. We had 72 holes of golf. We had all the resources in the world. And I remember I said, guys, we're going to make this as perfect as it can be. And I look back, I don't think it could have been any more perfect except for one thing. We had a hydraulic leak on the tee that we were going to be playing from on number 17, which is one of the most talked about par threes in the history of golf, where Calcavecchia blew it into the water along with several other guys. And we came up with the idea of trying to put green grass clippings on the hydraulic leak during the day 
And of course, as we were doing that with the wind blowing, the grass cuttings were blowing away and drying out faster than what they would stay green. So uh, I guess you can say that was kind of funny, but we were trying to we were trying to camouflage that one little thing that caused us maybe not to get the perfection we were looking for. So that kind of stands out in my mind of something that happened to me with uh, of all the tournaments. I didn't host a lot of them, but the tournament experience that I've had. So classic, you know, in your mind, in your mind at the time, you you, you might have thought that it mattered, but you know, some thirty years later now, it's a classic event, and there's not anybody that ever even noticed it. You know. Yeah, I, I remember Kerry Haig called me and said, hey, what are we going to do about this? So we uh, we actually just ended up moving the tees around and compensating for it. But, you know, when you're when you're trying to reach absolute perfection, little things like that, you're trying to reach the you're trying to reach the stars with your conditions. Oh, I get it, man. I, I believe me. I know about hydraulic leaks right before a big event. Keith, how about you? What's uh, in your in your tournament history? You got any good stories? Oh yeah, I've got plenty of good stories. It's um, yeah, tournament golf is full of camaraderie, and you work a lot of long hours, and everybody wants the golf course to be as good as it can be, and they, they just work really hard um, to get it there. But uh, one thing that comes to my mind doesn't even really involve people. I had a I had a dog with me at Sedgefield. Uh, her name was Abby. It's a golden retriever, and she was riding with me during one of the proams, and uh, and she had a towel fetish. Anytime she saw a white towel, the dog went crazy and wanted to just play tug with the towel. Well, Sergio Garcia is on the 18th tee, and he had a white towel on his bag. And before I knew it, man, she was out of the cart, and she was tugging on Sergio's towel on his golf bag, knocked his golf bag over, freaked his caddy out. And Sergio, <laughs> you know, I, I didn't know what was going to happen. I was kind of in shock. Sergio, um, he took the towel off his bag, and he played tug with my dog there on the 18th tee and um and he walked down the walk path with her playing tug the whole way until he got to his ball and i thought that was the coolest thing and you know i became a sergio fan at that point absolutely absolutely do you you get to continue to talk to him and and uh reminisce about the, that event uh when you see him these days no you know it, it kind of it, it passing by that was uh one of the early Wyndham Wyndham championships he went on to win uh, the Wyndham Championship my last year there at Sedgefield. So uh, I don't know if he remembers it, but it's one of those things that's going to stick in my mind forever. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. Well, guys, thanks again. It was awesome. You guys were great and uh, really appreciate you providing that inside information uh, to, to our listeners. And we hope that you'll be on again. Keith, best of luck this week. We'll be pulling for you, rooting for you. Thanks, Curtis. Thank you very much for being on here. And, and George, sorry you're not going to get to come up to see us, but uh, – Hopefully, I'll talk to you during the week. Absolutely. We'll be in touch soon, Keith, and look forward to it. I know the golf course will be as good as it always is. All right, guys. Thank you very much. Well, there is no doubt that the hardest part of this podcast is keeping it to about 30 to 45 minutes so that you can enjoy it on your way to work or your way home. Find a short little time in your day to fit us in because you know what? We could have gone on forever with Keith and George. I tell you what, they're fantastic guests and we're going to have to have them back on as soon as possible. Make sure you tune in next week. We're going to have Casey Kauf of 
Trinity Forest Golf Club talking about the Byron Nelson. And guess what? iTunes is working. You can subscribe to the podcast there. So go on iTunes if you're an Apple guy, subscribe. And if you're a Google Play, you can subscribe there as well. And don't forget to go to our YouTube channel, The Course Reports, and check out our 2019 PGA Championship preview at Beth Page Black with Andy Wilson and Mike Hadley. We're getting tons of great response. It's a great show, and we hope you find the time to enjoy it. Again, don't forget to tune in next week. Talk to you then. Bye.